Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Whereas last time we examined six interpretations people hold for Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, today we look at just one, the seventh. Jerry Weirbull is my guest again, and in this episode, the final in the three-part series, he explains his take on Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. He delves into wisdom Christology to show how these verses speak of Jesus protologically as wisdom that created the heavens and the earth. Here now is episode 451, Wisdom Christology in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, with Dr. Jerry Weirbull. Welcome back, Jerry Weirwell. So glad to talk with you again today about Hebrews chapter 1. Welcome to Restitutio. I'm glad to be here, Sean. So last time we looked at six different interpretive options for Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. We looked at how some people think that these verses are referring to God the Father, and others think it's referring to Jesus as the Creator, or the figurative creator of a new political system or a new planet or the mosaic order or new creation. And we discussed all those. Today, we're jumping into wisdom Christology. And this is a topic that most people, I would say, are pretty much not familiar with. You got into this a little bit in your presentation at UCA Con, and I thought this would be a really great subject for us to explore a little more in depth. I know this is an area where you are actively doing research and you are still developing your thoughts, but just wanted to get whatever insight we can into what you've learned so far. Uh, Why don't you start us out by talking about wisdom Christology in general and the Jewish views of wisdom that we find in intertestamental literature and other places and why this is even a a topic of, of interest in general. Yeah, of course. To start with, though, I just want to share the premises which lead up to that. You know, I take from my research and what I presented that the Katina as a whole is a literary unit with uh, the sun being contrasted with the angels. And therefore, uh, as I've argued elsewhere, that verses 10 through 12 should be applied to the sun. And I also think another premise is that I take heaven and earth there to be literal reference to heaven and earth, creation. And therefore, with those two things in mind, I then am looking for the way that the author is trying to use that sort of an approach to defend the superiority of the sun over angels. And as I went through in the presentation, you know, there's a lot of reference to wisdom Christology here in, in Hebrews. And the big thing is that it's not a, a well-known subject. You know, wisdom Christology is kind of like a specialized sort of approach where it's understanding how wisdom is being applied to Christ in the New Testament in various ways. Now, the wisdom tradition, I gave a small synopsis in, at the UCA conference in my presentation, is a, a Jewish way of talking about 
uh, God's kind of creative power, God's sort of plan and purpose, the way that he works out all things to his the ends that he desires according to his will. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in scripture, there is a strong flavor of this in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Proverbs, talking about the ways that wisdom are used in creating the world and that wisdom is with God in the beginning. And there's a, other poetic expressions of wisdom playing alongside God and being happy uh, with what God is doing. And this is carried on into other writings in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, where wisdom is also spoken of in lofty, exalted terms as uh, filling the universe and being used in all of creation and sitting by the throne of God and all of creation being created from it or through it. It's like a a tool, you could say, that God used. And so all these ideas of the way that wisdom is personified and, and poetically described, we find correlations with the way that Jesus as the Christ is spoken of in the New Testament. And places where it is said that through Christ, the world was created, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And then as Jesus being the word of God in John chapter 1, it's described there that all things came into existence, if you take that translation, or happened through the word, the logos, which ends up being Jesus and so uh, we see that uh, the Logos and the, also the Sophia, the wisdom of God, they find this expression in Jesus. Now, nowhere in the New Testament is it explicitly said that, you know, the Sophia became Jesus or things like that. But uh, it does say that Christ became the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.30, where it says that Christ became the wisdom of God. That might be about as close as we get in the New Testament. And so from that, we can then postulate that Christ resembles and embodies this wisdom that is said to be with God. And that is also said to be an agent in creation. So the logic for wisdom Christology is that Christ is sort of this embodiment of, of God's creative wisdom and that Christ is spoken of as being wisdom that was used in creation. Now, taking that into Hebrews chapter 1, the way that the author is constructing the argument is showing that in verses 10 through 12, applying a creation passage to Christ in a figurative way through a wisdom Christology approach means that Jesus is just sort of like the entire creative purpose and powerful wisdom of God at work. And as he's been exalted to God's right hand and has taken the position uh, where wisdom is said to reside, then he is being spoken of in the terms of the creative power with which wisdom was used by God to create the world. Okay, so let, let me back up a little bit here, and I just keep thinking of Proverbs 8 and the personification used there, where wisdom is a she, and she is a master craftsman or worker with God 
who is there in the beginning during creation and doing all this stuff. And so this is the idea of personification where you take an attribute or a thing and speak of it as if it's a person, even though it's not a distinct or separate person from God himself. And this way of speaking of God's wisdom or his word or his spirit, especially wisdom, gets really meditated upon a lot by later Jewish thought, as as you mentioned, Jerry. And so it's something that's very much like in the background in the New Testament period. Is that would you, would you say that's fair? This way of talking about wisdom. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a very Hebraic kind of mindset and way of speaking. Yeah. So what we're saying here is that with Hebrews one ten through twelve, the obvious problem with your hypothesis here is that it doesn't have the word wisdom in verses ten through twelve. But you overcame that in your presentation by mentioning several other places in chapter 1 that do have significant tie-ins to wisdom, including even a couple of obscure words that you think would signal to the audience, hey, we're talking about wisdom here. So, you know, if we grant that, then what are we saying here as far as what Hebrews 1.10 is saying, it's, it's actually talking about wisdom, laying the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and not talking about Jesus in verse 10? Or, wh- like, how, how would you explain this? How would you interpret this in light of wisdom Christology? If you were to say the verses in your own words, for example. Yeah, I think any figurative interpretation is going to have to find some place to draw meaning from. And to me, exegetically, it seems the most likely, due to the lexical and thematic links that I explained, that there's at least some ground to stand on within chapter 1 that would bring forth the idea of a wisdom Christology perspective. And I think that that's a stronger approach than some of the other interpretive options, because I think they have less grounding within chapter one of Hebrews and bring, they import more foreign content into explain their interpretation. Now looking at Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 in wisdom Christology, it's not that Jesus was wisdom back long ago in Genesis. And it's just another sort of title for him and another like name for Jesus Uh, Jesus didn't exist when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, but wisdom was there and was personified as being one of the agents that God used to create the world. And with Jesus becoming or embodying the wisdom of God and being exalted to God's right hand in the position where wisdom is said to dwell, according to the wisdom, the Jewish wisdom tradition— that this is a figurative way of trying to elevate Jesus above the angels in that as none of the angels are, are said to, to become God's wisdom or to be God's wisdom, creation is never described as being done through any angel as it is said to be done through wisdom and then also through Jesus, the Christ, 
So in, a, in my own words, I would say verses 10 through 12 are pointing to Jesus as being previously a man that is lower than the angels, but has been enthroned in heaven above at God's right hand and given this cosmic role over the universe, over the heaven and the earth, that could be seen as the place that wisdom resides. And I think this fits with the author of Hebrews' argument because he's looking to try to show if this present world has been committed to angels as the messengers of God, then to show Christ as being over the created order, over, over top of all creation, is a way to show his superiority to them. But I also don't want to just focus on the first phrase of verse 10. The real point of the quotation is actually not verse 10. It's verse 12. Because that has a tie-in with the end of verse 8 about this sort of everlasting position and unchangeable sort of status. So the, the point being that while creation may come and go and the role of angels will change uh, from the present age in, on into the age to come, the Son as the enthroned King the enthroned Messiah King will not change. He will be the same and his years will, will, will never end or ha not fail. And this is, this is also picked up later on in Hebrews 13.8 that talks about Jesus being the same today and forever. There's this idea that Jesus as the exalted, enthroned Messiah King, Son of God, that he is now in a station over all of creation forever. And that his superiority is one that is permanent and unchanging. And I think that this is sort of the reason why the author is trying to pull in Jesus as being over creation is because then it shows that there is no higher position above him except the Father. Mm-hmm. The point here is to establish Jesus as uh, superior to the angels, and one way of doing that is to attribute to him creation, because to the angels, no one attributes creation. So if Jesus can in some sense be found, what, responsible for the Genesis creation? Associated with or connected to? Yeah. Then that would further his, his case that he's, he's better than the angels. And really, you know, the, the interest of this whole argument is that, you know, the angels are associated with the Mosaic Law and that Jesus is associated with this new covenant and, you know, that's really where we're going. So it's not Christological, I guess. I mean, it is Christological, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not in a Greek sense. You know, we're not trying to sort out the substance of Jesus. We're using this Psalm 102 quotation rhetorically to establish superiority. I think that's an important point to make. Yeah. Um, I make that in my presentation based on an assertion from uh, George Card, the mentor of N.T. Wright, where he talks that in the Hebrew mind, 
this idea of ontological assignment is so foreign to what the author is doing here. Uh, actually, I can reread that real quick. Yeah, sure. Uh, what I read was that the from George Card, the author of Hebrews has no place in his thinking for pre-existence as an ontological concept. His essentially human Jesus attains to perfection, to preeminence, and even to eternity. And But not eternity in both directions. No, no, I mean, no, what he's trying to say is that Jesus, as this human Messiah, he was lower than the angels, but due to his obedience, as the author of Hebrews goes on to say, due to his faithfulness and obedience, he has now attained to the highest status there is. He's attained to the most preeminent position. He's attained to an unchangeable resurrected body. And he's also attained to an unchallenged or unrivaled power. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in the beginning of Hebrews chapter one, it, it describes him in, in like these unprecedented terms that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus is upholding all things by his powerful word. Now, we could even see a cosmic role at play in that description. And no angel is said to ever be the, the reflection of God's glory in the sense that the sun is, or the exact representation of God's nature in the way that Jesus as the sun is, nor are they upholding all things by their powerful word. They're not given that role. Only the sun is given that unique role. All right, so let me throw a an argument against you and see see what you think. James White and uh, Trinitarian apologists of his ilk will say that there is a, and this is nowhere in the Bible, but this is a philosophical distinction, that there's a creator-creation divide, and that the, the separation ontologically between a creator and and all of creation, doesn't matter how exalted of a being we're talking about, is essentially infinite. You know, there, there's just no comparison between the creator and the creation. And so if Jesus here is the Lord, in verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, then that is saying that Jesus is the creator, ergo, he's superior to the angels because he's on the creator side of the creator-creation divide. How would you respond to that argument? I would say that first off, I think he's arguing clearly in ontological terms mm -hmm. to be creator or creature. Those, those are very ontological terms. To be God is one thing, and to be a created being is another thing. And I, I don't think you can be a half creator, half creature, <laughs> you know? So I, I would say that I think that that line, you know, in, in some sort of Greek philosophical analytical way is true. Do I think that that is a biblical concept? No, I don't. The scriptures, they're very comfortable in the Hebrew mind, sort of like, I don't want to use the word blurring the lines because that sounds like it's demeaning, but they're very comfortable with sharing they are so comfortable sharing associations where, you know, things are said 
to be done by God that are then done through agents of God, but they're spoken of as being God. I mean, and the death blow to like, for example, White's argument, which is a common one that a lot of people use, uh, is that in the intertestamental period, there are actual figures besides God who are given creative roles as well. Um, in some of the apocryphal literature and other Second Temple Judaism literature. Right. So what White is doing is he's, he's missing the rhetorical function of this text within the Katina, and he's approaching it from a very foreign thought world in order to cherry-pick out an argument to use in favor of exalting Jesus to the realm of God, because when we say creator, that's what we're really saying here. Uh, and it's just it's just a hermeneutically suspicious maneuver. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, well, uh, God doesn't give his glory to anyone else, as it says in Isaiah, mm-hmm. uh, Isaiah 42. But yet then he gives his glory to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is, should be viewed as on the side of the creator and should be viewed as God because God doesn't give his glory to anybody else. But then there's other people who share God's glory in the Old Testament. The angels are described in terms of God's glory. And so I think the argument is, as you said, it's a, it's a hermeneutic to try to make a distinction, but I, I think it's artificial. I, I don't think that it actually holds true in all cases. In some deg- degrees, you can it's plausible that that's, that's the way to view things, but to make it sort of like a universal rule by which we then have to now interpret everything, I think that that is overstating it by far. Mm-hmm. Have you been able to come up with any kind of an analogy for this process? Like, my, my brain is tried and tried. Have you had any thoughts there? I've thought about it, and to see once if there's a way to sort of connect it to our real-life experience, you know, our lived experience. It's hard because I think that this is such a unique description toward Jesus as the Son that we don't find anywhere else in this way. Uh, and that's why Hebrews chapter 1, is particularly these verses, have have been a very difficult text for biblical Unitarians to interpret mm-hmm. because it seems to be making hermeneutical moves that are, are hard for us to, to grasp since they're unique. Now, if, if there was many more places where this type of thing was done, it, it might be easier to kind of find out how they, they use it. But it's, it's actually not used in this way where an action like such as creation is being attributed to Jesus. There are lots of texts in the New Testament where an Old Testament passage about Yahweh is reapplied in a, in a new way to Jesus mm-hmm. as the Christ, but they're usually in in ways where Jesus bears the name of Yahweh. And then like even in Hebrews 1, we have verse 6 where there's a passage from Deuteronomy and Psalms uh, that speaks about Yahweh and the angels worshiping Yahweh, and that is now applied to Jesus, where the Jesus now is worthy or deserves the worship of angels. But it's not insurmountable to say that the angels are supposed to pay homage to Jesus mm-hmm. as the Son. It comes to be difficult when then to say, well, an Old Testament passage about Yahweh as the creator 
is now, and even if you view Yahweh, you know, from a Septuagintal perspective to be responding to the psalmist or the suppliant, the one who's speaking to God, and then Yahweh speaking to him as a, a some sort of a secondary Lord. And either way, you still have this creative force at work in the text that is being attributed to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we have to do business with what could that mean? And yeah, the traditional interpretation is one way to look at it. You have the literal application, which is simple, as I've said before. But as we said you know, in, in the previous episode, that then engenders a whole host of other problems which become compounded and, and make the understanding more difficult. Yeah, it's like if we take it at face value, it messes up the chapter, uh, and especially going down into chapter 2, verse all the way down into verse 5 and following. The overall flow is just sort of like knocked out by a face value reading. So what we're trying to do is read it the way the author intended it to function in the argument, and it is not obvious what that is. There's another quote from Card that really kind of changed my view of, of looking at this and trying to think more Hebraically about it rather than more analytically. He writes that the problem of the sixth citation, which is Psalm 102 here, is commonly misstated. Most scholars have been content to remark that the author of Hebrews applies to Christ, a psalm originally addressed to God, the Creator, and to deduce from this that he regarded Christ as divine and preexistent. But this is imprecise. Like most of the other scriptural passages he quotes, the author regards this one as a word spoken by God addressed by him to the Son, of whom he has just said in the words of another psalm, your God has anointed you above your fellows. That's forty-five Psalm 45, 7. Difficult as the idea may be to us who have been taught to think in very different terms, Christ is now said to be raised above his fellows and incidentally above the ministrant angels by being appointed to a cosmic role. He is the man in whom the divine wisdom has been appointed to dwell so as to make him the bearer of the whole purpose of creation. Now, what Card is trying to say is that the simple deduction that most interpreters apply to this passage, he says is imprecise and that it actually misses the force Mm -hmm. of the author of Hebrews that he's trying to make. I think that's astounding that a world-class scholar like Card is, is challenging the status quo traditional interpretation, saying that it's not in these terms, these analytical, Greek philosophical, ontological terms that we should be trying to discern this creature-creator divide type of thing, but we should be looking at it in terms of rank and that these citations are meant to show a distance in rank between the angels and the Son, Jesus. And that it's it's not about uh, him being the creator, but it's about him being wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that this divine wisdom that dwells in Jesus, that Jesus is sort of embodying, and, and that he's now occupying the place next to God that wisdom is said to dwell, that that just shows how he has been elevated to this cosmic role over all heaven and earth. So if I could... Uh take a stab at explaining this and get your thoughts on it. I, I think that would be helpful. I, I like to, to use this word career, because wisdom has a career prior to Christ. 
in which wisdom lays the foundation of the earth. I mean, it's really God. This whole thing is a little esoteric because it's really God who creates it's heavens an and the earth. But yeah, the abstraction or and personification we see in Proverbs eight and in intertestamental literature, like uh, the Book of Wisdom, or what is it, Wisdom of Solomon? Yep. In the in the Wisdom of Solomon, is that uh, wisdom has acted in a way that created or participated in the creation, however you want to say that, and then wisdom came to. Uh, be incarnate or enfleshed in Jesus Christ, not as a person, but as an attribute that Christ is wholly dependent on his Father, and his Father's dwelling in him, and and the wisdom of God is dwelling in him. These are all very similar concepts, in my head at least. So as a result of that, the author of Hebrews can point to Jesus and attribute to Jesus something that, in fact, Jesus did not do, but because there's a continuity within Jesus of wisdom, that uh, act of creation can be rightly applied to Christ in that particular way. Am I... Yeah, that's, that's the... <laughs> I feel that's, like I'm talking in circles. Am I summarizing that, it well, or wh- wh- correct me where I'm wrong here? Yeah, that's basically the idea behind the word protological. Okay. You know, we, we say uh, sometimes proleptical, which means we're looking forward to some, we speak, we speak about something right now, but it's really not happening right now, but we speak about it as though it is, but it's really something that's happening like down the road in the future. Uh, protological is to speak in terms of something that happened at the beginning. Protos meaning first or, or beginning or at the start, you could say in Greek. And for Jesus to be spoken of as something in the beginning, but not literally being there in existence. But And I think you made a really good point that the way to look at it is, is that there's a continuity between the activity of wisdom in the Old Testament and the way it's described and Jesus, who is said to become God's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, in a way, the writer of Hebrews and within the Hebraic mindset, they are comfortable to make these associations. And it's not that they're trying to make some claim about Jesus being a former pre-existent being and then becoming lower than the angels, like so being superior to the angels and then becoming lower to them, but that he is he was made, he was he was born as a human and he was below the angels. But through God's work in him as the Messiah and through his perfect obedience and then ultimately his exaltation at his resurrection to the right hand of God, he has, in a sense, stepped into the shoes of, of wisdom and is now occupying that place. So it's, it's really about associations and it's not about trying to make some sort of hard analytical deduction about Jesus's ontological nature. I, I was thinking of the idea of ancestry and uh, and rulership. Let's say my ancestor. This is for, for so far as I know, totally not true, hypothetical. Uh, but let's say an ancestor of mine founded a great kingdom, and uh, this kingdom, I don't know did some, like, really, let's just say, really wonderful thing. You know, th- this uh, this this kingdom 
invented some sort of medical treatment uh, that, you know, like transfusing blood or something like that, okay? So that was that was part of like the Royal Research Program and they they developed this. And so I'm some ancestor that came along so many, however many generations later, and somebody is now going to look at me and say to me, you, in the beginning, laid the foundation for transfusing blood. And they know, and I know, that that was 300 years ago, and that I'm only 42 years old. But they're attributing to me, because I am a descendant, uh, and, and therefore, what, I own some of the credit? Is that... Is that <laughs> Maybe if we modify the analogy slightly... I just so wanted an analogy, Jerry. I, I know. You know I do. I mean, it would be great if, if we could have one. <laughs> if you looked at the kingdom, let's say there's a kingdom that was responsible for this medical development, and there was a king who sort of like was the sponsor and, and right. benefactor of this research, and, and they got it going, and, and actually participated in some of the research... And then you're a descendant of that king ruling in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And some foreigner comes and claims that you created this medical therapy mm -hmm. that we are benefiting from over in this other country. Well, but this was hundreds of years ago, maybe, you know, but because you occupy a a place of rulership and authority and that the kingdom is a, is identified with you that you can then be said to have done something that you had no personal involvement in. Right. That, that might be the way to construct the analogy, and it would be similar. The difference would be that it's the kingdom that's the same, and the rulers are changing. Mm -hmm. In the analogy with Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, being applied to Jesus as the son, wisdom was used in the beginning, but then wisdom is, is now being, Jesus is, is becoming wisdom. So... It's a, it's kind of like a the connection is is not you have rulers changing and the kingdom stays the same. It would be almost as though the you had a, a way for the original king who started the program to somehow for you to imbibe his knowledge and role, and then you carry it on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess what we're, we're we're trying to express is the idea of continuity as well as independent identity, right? So you have uh, wisdom has its own identity as, you know, an attribute. It's not even a person, so far as we're talking about it here. And then you have a person. So you have like an attribute becoming a person or indwelling a person, right? So that's the continuity. The wisdom of God is within Christ or Jesus becomes the wisdom of God or whatever, however you want to say that. So there is a continuity there. And if there's any continuity at all, you can make this kind of a move. So, you know, I, I don't know if that's a good analogy or if, if some of our listeners can come up with a better analogy to describe this kind of a process. But I, I think you're right, you know, and I really appreciate these card quotes because most of us are approaching this text from a Western civilization mindset, uh, a post-enlightenment mindset that really likes an analytical, clearly demarcated categories. Uh, and that's not the thought world of this document. It's a very poetic section, really. 
I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it poetry, but it is spaced out poetically in my Bible because he's quoting the Psalms, and the Psalms are of that poetic style. And uh, when you're dealing with things like this, you can you can blur the lines, and you can you can say things in in poetry that you can't say in prose and get away with it. And people, instead of saying, "Well, that you're not being precise," you say, "I know." Like, of course I'm not being precise. It's supposed to be pretty, not precise. There are ways of making connections, jumping over something in the middle to the other end, and uh, that seems to be what's going on here if this, if this wisdom Christology is in play, because he doesn't actually mention wisdom, right? So, like, he's jumping over that middle right to the career of wisdom, which involves uh, creation itself. And wisdom Christology, along with Logos Christology, they are means of explaining how Jesus can be described protologically. Like when Jesus, when it says like in 1 Corinthians 8, that through him are all things, you have the same conundrum that like, well, how can you do something through Jesus in the beginning of in Genesis and create the heavens and the earth if he didn't exist? What? How does this throughness? And this comes to a large category called divine agency and representation in the Hebrew mind Mm -hmm. where you can speak very fluidly about associations uh, between uh, objects and and people and things like that if even if they had nothing to do with it as long as they then become associated or connected to it in some way and so when we look at logos and wisdom Christology we see that the scriptures are connecting together the purpose the ultimate purpose and goal of creation is finding its consummation in Christ and is finding its trajectory in Christ and that he is bringing together and bringing about the purposes of God. And so in this type of association that you could say like through wisdom, something was done or through the word, something was done. Similarly, through Jesus, something was done. It's like with a view toward Jesus or seeing Jesus futuristically speaking, you know, you could say in God's foreknowledge, looking ahead and doing something with that in mind. Yeah. I think I found another analogy. Go for it. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9 says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, Levi, of course, is a descendant of Abraham, grandson of Abraham, and uh, Abraham Isaac, great-grandson of Abraham. From a scientific perspective, yeah, Levi, or historical perspective, Levi did not yet exist. Like, he did not exist. But the continuity is that he was in the loins of his ancestor. Like, he was the descendant of the descendant of the descendant, you know, everything that would become Levi was already there. And it was thought of as existing (laughs) in a sort of a potential nascent sense. Nascent, yeah. What I find interesting about this parallel that I'm trying to draw out here is that the author of Hebrews is quite comfortable attributing to Levi something that Levi did not do, but his ancestor did would namely pay ties to Melchizedek. And once again, it's the same kind of a move in that the point he's making is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Levi, 
and in particular Aaron, because Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, and Abraham is the ancestor of Levi, and so you know the the whole thing works out protologically as attributing to Levi a subservient status to Melchizedek, and and actions that were taken of which he had no part of. Right. Literally. Yeah. So if we can find the same kind of move or a similar kind of move made by the same person in another place of the book, it gives this way of doing it legs. You know, it doesn't prove it, but uh, it gives it a lot more credibility. What helps people, I think, connect with the Hebrew mind and how associations can be made when perhaps the literal application is not true, Mm -hmm. but the association is still true in the Hebrew mind. Uh, All right, what else do we want to get into here? Any areas of further research that you're doing on this or any final concluding statements? Well, I think to bring things back around uh, and wrap up this episode here, for the listeners, this might be a challenging interpretive approach for them. If they've never come across or, or had any familiarity with wisdom Christology or these type of associations in Scripture from a Hebrew perspective from a Hebraic mindset. But I would just challenge and encourage people to step back from looking through our Western 21st century kind of mindset where we want to have nice, neat categories and and be able to draw clear lines uh, between objects and to try to understand more of what the impetus is and the motivation in the mind of the New Testament writer, like the writer of Hebrews. And to also allow the text to be able to direct us in how we should understand it, even if it goes in directions that maybe might make us a little uncomfortable at first. The reason why I argue for a wisdom Christology perspective is that I think that it has the greatest exegetical and hermeneutical basis upon which to argue from. Looking in the text and having the lexical and thematic links and seeing the argument of the author of Hebrews being holistic and seeing its place within that, then it lends a lot of credibility to trying to find out how is verse 10 being applied to Jesus in a way that doesn't then have to pull in a lot of foreign ideas from maybe figurative Old Testament references or there there is another interpretation where you can kind of look at it through like, a completely metaphorical, figurative use of of a political regime uh, during the reign of Hezekiah. But all of that is is outside of Hebrews chapter 1. If we look at the context of Hebrews chapter 1, I think we will find the evidence that he's trying to point to Christ as being somehow in this cosmic role where he's being described as akin to the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that that is a way to show his superior status over the angels. Very good. Can you recommend any further resources that people can get a hold of to do more research on this? Yeah, if people want to kind of get an understanding of wisdom Christology, uh, there's an excellent book written by Ben Witherington III called Jesus the Sage, the Pilgrimage of Wisdom. And uh, for the quotes uh, by George Card, I I got those from a chapter 
uh, out of a, a book called The New Testament Age, Volume 1, uh, Essays in Honor of Bo Reich. And there's a chapter in there on his approach to how we should understand uh, Hebrews 1 and uh, the arguments of the Katina, the seven Old Testament quotations that the author uses to show the superior elevated status of the Son. And we can add to that uh, your paper from last year's conference, Intertextuality and Interpretation of Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. People can get that on your website? Yeah, it's uh, under the New Testament research at jerrywearwell.com. Okay, very good. Well, thanks for speaking with me today and delving into this complicated topic. You know, it's something that, you know, it's a text that I think is important for us to discuss and uh, that we do want to continue to work on to gain a greater understanding of it. So thanks, Jerry. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings this interview to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 451 on Wisdom Christology and leave your feedback there. Also, in the show notes, I've got some recommended reading, including a link to Jerry's paper, Intertextuality and Interpretation of Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, and links to the two books he mentioned, Jesus, the Sage, and then the New Testament Age, Volume 1. Uh, the last of which is really expensive on Amazon, but if you go to other websites, you can get it at a reasonable cost, at least at the time of this recording. Also, I have links to other episodes with Jerry Werewolf, as well as other posts and episodes about Hebrews 1.10. If you're interested in that, it's all in the show notes or on the website at restitutio.org. A number of folks have commented in on the episode from last week on the seven interpretations of Hebrews 1.10-12. through 12. I posted this in, uh, of course, our our own Restitutio Facebook group, but also I posted it in the UCA Facebook group. That's the Unitarian Christian Alliance Facebook group. And uh, probably most people that commented on that just picked whatever position they prefer, which I was interested to see that the overwhelming majority chose position one. And that is the idea that these verses are a change of subject, from talking about the Son, which is crystal clear in verses 8 and 9, that uh, with the word and there in verse 10, we change the subject to now talk about the Father. And Jerry sees this as quite problematic. In fact, that is probably the the main position he argued against in his paper. He spent a lot of time on that. And uh, so I I would be curious to see some reasoned rebuttals to what we heard here uh, in the last three episodes, if somebody is able to rebut the analysis that Jerry brought. Uh, But what I found also very strange, also oddly familiar, (laughs) annoyingly familiar, is that a number of folks took the opportunity seized upon the post that I put on there to question why we should do theology at all and harshly criticized any kind of intellectual activity apart from evangelism. To be honest, it's frustrating to see this anti-intellectualism continuing on generation after generation, but it is something that uh, many of us have to face and have to constantly defend ourselves. You know, what would be really great is if uh, people like Jerry Werewolf, who spent all this time doing all this work, if people actually supported him and said, hey, nice job, 
maybe you don't agree with his conclusion, but like you recognize that God has gifted him to do this work and that he's trying and he's putting in the time and, you know, an honest effort to do it. But instead, the response is, you're too intellectual, you're, you know, you're puffed up, uh, all we need is love and all this. And it's like, look, if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, this is not the way to treat people who are part of the home team who are doing this kind of work. The way to treat them is to say to them, I see what you're doing. Maybe it's not something I'm interested in. Maybe it's not something that I care to spend all the time to try to understand, but I recognize the value of what you're doing. Just like we should recognize the value of a missionary who lives overseas, who sacrifices the comforts that many of us enjoy in order to share the gospel with unreached people. You know, do, do we say to that person, oh, well, pfft, you know, you really should go learn Hebrew? No. You recognize the value of what the missionary is doing. We should recognize the value of what the pastor is doing. We should recognize the value of what the musician does. Recognize the value, likewise, of what the scholar does, the Christian scholar. And really, my take on this is strongly informed by 1 Corinthians 12, which is not talking about this so much, uh, but there's there's a parallel in Romans 12 as well that, that could tie in in Ephesians 4. But the idea is that we're not all the same. There's diversity in the body of Christ, and that diversity is good. We're not all an eyeball. We're not all an ear. We're not all a tongue. There are many different roles and functions in the body of Christ, and I would just love to see this anti-scholar prejudice go by the wayside. Uh, yes, there is a danger that the more you study anything, the more you can become detached from regular people, the more difficulty you can have communicating with them. Sure, I understand that. I think most people understand that. Arrogance is bad whether you're uneducated or educated. It's always bad. And the whole problem with this mindset becomes clear as soon as we transfer the situation to another realm of life. Let's say you've got a mechanic, and your mechanic is pretty decent at fixing cars, but doesn't have as much education as uh, necessary to do certain things, certain more complex things, or use certain kinds of equipment for which he or she is not qualified. And so your mechanic goes back to school or studies on their own nights and weekends, really slaves away at pursuing knowledge in the field so that he or she could become better informed and better at understanding, exegeting, if you will, the engine or the car. Who in the world would ever criticize a mechanic that worked hard to learn better how to understand how to fix a car? Who would criticize a doctor who was too nerdy. <laughs> uh, you, you're not going to criticize people in other fields or a pilot who does extra training to deal with unusual situations that may come up so that he or she could be prepared. This is a no-brainer in every other area of life. But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Bible, now suddenly, oh, well, you don't want to get too puffed up, brother. You don't want to get too, uh, too educated. Education is bad. It's like, what are you talking about? Education is not bad. What's bad is insufferable jerks that think they're better than other people. And you know what? I've seen plenty of them that are uneducated and plenty of them that are educated. And we can all agree to stand against that, to stand against people that are puffed up, 
to standing against people that think they're better than others. Uh, that's not the mark of true education. So I fully recognize that this podcast, Restitutio, although it has a lot of different kinds of content, that there are episodes in this podcast where we do get into the weeds, where we do nerdy, theological, college-level stuff. And you know what? I love that. I think that's good. I think that you ha- there should be a place... <laughs> There should be a place where this kind of intellectual rigor can come out, and it's not the Sunday morning pulpit of a local church. You know, if Jerry came up, and Jerry serves as a pastor at my church, where I'm the lead pastor, Living Hope Community Church here in Latham, New York, and, you know, if Jerry went up there, and he preaches about once a month, and he got up there and he said, oh, I'm going to give you the seven interpretive options for for an informed Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 hermeneutic that takes into account the lexical tie-ins to wisdom Christology and interprets the text within the catena of uh, Septuagintal quotes in which we find it. Some sort of statement like that, right? That would be highly inappropriate. So where do we do it? Where do we do it? If we can't do it on a Sunday, we can't do it on a, a Bible study where you just got like a few friends together, where do you do it? This is where you do it this podcast, other podcasts, other YouTube channels, because this is valuable work, and I believe in it, and I think it does help, and I know it's not for everyone, and if you feel alienated by it, look, you've got two choices. Either just skip this kind of content because it's it's not relevant to your life, and that's totally fine. I'm not going to be sad about that. You shouldn't be sad about that. Or look up all the words that you don't know as you go through the episode and do the work to learn the the lingo, the jargon, the theological terms, and you know, if you if you apply yourself and work hard, you'll be able to understand this kind of content. You know, uh, I I had to work at it very hard for years before I could understand a lot of these things. And you know what? I'm still working on it. I'm still learning. This is one of the things that I believe God's called me to do. So I'm going to keep doing it. And I appreciate those of you who see the need for this kind of content. And yet at the same time. To be honest, I do get tired of just totally nerdy stuff, and I'm looking for inspirational stuff sometimes, too. And that's why this podcast is so diverse, because I like diversity. I like variety. I like to hear stories. I like to hear good preaching. I like to hear good exegesis where someone goes verse by verse through a text. So I hope that makes sense to all of you. Thanks to all of you who support Restitutio. Uh, You can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.